0: If you've got your copy of God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to open up with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We've been walking through the book of Exodus this year. We've seen God save His people from bondage in Egypt, sustain them in the wilderness, and now He's entered into a covenant with His people Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Moses, has been leading God's people to this point at Mount Sinai, and now God is telling Israel that His desire is that they will be His people, that they will follow and obey Him, that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a light to the nations, distinct from the nations, but that their holy lives will lead the nations who worship other gods to come and believe in the one true God, Yahweh of Israel. So he enters into this covenant with Israel and says, if you will follow me and obey me, then I will bless you. I will be with you. I will take you to the promised land. I will empower you. But if you reject me, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, if you reject me and go your own way and go the way of the world then instead of experiencing My blessing, you will experience My judgment as a holy God who always does what is right. The Ten Commandments oftentimes in our day are discussed primarily in the context of Christians wanting them to be in front of courthouses Some will say we should, some will say we shouldn't have them. They will say that this is the foundation for all morality that we have in our country and our world. But in the context of the Bible, the Ten Commandments is more than just a tablet of stone. It is the beginning of a covenant agreement with God. And as we've walked through these commands in the last weeks, and as we wrap them up next Sunday with the 10th command, we've seen that God is calling His people to love and worship Him the right way. The first four commands deal with loving God exclusively. The last six deal with loving our neighbors as ourselves. We've walked through the commands to honor authority and not murder and not commit adultery and last week not to steal and we've talked each week about how these commands are not just a a low standard to meet but God wants us to obey them with our hearts and our lives. This week is the same as we look at the ninth command from Exodus chapter 20 verse 16 which simply states in a few words you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. My hope this morning is to unpack what God specifically is saying in this verse in Exodus to the Israelites, but also to zoom out and ask, what does all the Bible say about this topic of bearing false witness, and how does it apply to our lives today? So I want to point your attention to four truths about this topic of bearing false witness. The first is the most obvious. Bearing false witness with our words is forbidden by God. It's forbidden by God. When you hear this language of bearing false witness, it should remind us of legal language. It should remind us of a courtroom scene where witnesses are called upon to come and help share what they have seen in order to help judges and juries make right and just decisions about whether or not someone is guilty or innocent. Remember in the ancient world, they did not have CSI. They did not have DNA or fingerprints or video evidence accessible to them like we do in our day. The only way that you could prove that someone had done something wrong or that they had not done something wrong, that they'd been accused of, was eyewitness account. And in order for these ancient cultures to maintain justice, these witnesses would have had to be truthful. Someone's life. And reputation can be ruined, and justice can be perverted when people bear false witness. That's still the truth today. Israel has been created by God through Abraham's family, descendants of Abraham. Israel has been saved by God from their bondage. In Egypt, Israel has been sustained by God in their wilderness wanderings, and God has done all of these things for Israel in order to create a holy people who are distinct from the nations around them. They were to be just and righteous because their God, who they were to reflect through their lives and their their people, was perfectly just and righteous. But in order for Israel to be who God has called and created them to be, their lives had to be built on truth in the courtroom, but also in their daily lives. Those who were called to leadership in Israel were required to be just and fair in their dealings, not willing to accept a bribe or personally benefit from their position of power, but also those in Israel who were not in leadership were supposed to pursue justice and truth at all times as image bearers of the true and just God. As a nation, there to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, so truth. Had to be the foundation of their lives. Knowing, however, that Israel, like all humanity, had a sin nature, God's laws include specific rules that require multiple witnesses in order to verify wrongdoing. The New Testament even carries that principle forward, saying that accusations made against Christians and church leaders within the church should only be heard whenever there are multiple witnesses. Every one of us is prone to harm others' lives and their reputations through false words, half-truths, exaggerations, and delicious morsels of gossip that aid us in getting what we want. But bearing false witness with our words is and always has been forbidden by God. That's the first obvious truth from this verse. But as with many of these commands that are put forward in the Scriptures negatively, there's a positive side to this command as well. And that's our second truth. Speaking the truth in love is required. We're not supposed to bear false witness. That's forbidden. But on the opposite side of the coin, we are called to speak the truth in love. That means we're supposed to speak the truth to our neighbors and about our neighbors. Why? Because people are made in God's image and therefore have an inherent value and dignity even if we are all imperfect. Even if we have all messed up and oftentimes don't deserve grace, we are made in God's image and therefore have value and dignity inherent to our being. As a result of us being made in God's image, what we say about others, what we say to others matters to God. A perusal through the New Testament will show you verse after verse after verse speaking about how the Christian life is to be one where our tongue shows self-control. In particular, James teaches in the New Testament that the tongue is a restless evil that cannot be tamed and can be destructive like a forest fire. James teaches that the same mouth that we can use to praise and worship and bless God can also be used to curse those who are made in God's image. But that should not be true. That should not be so for God's new covenant people who, unlike the people of Israel, have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Unlike the people of Israel have been been given new hearts and new desires and new affections for the Lord. The law for the church is no longer written on tablets of stone, but it's written on the hearts of those who have repented and believed in the finished work of Christ. And part of that transformed life that all Christians are called to is speaking the truth in love. It's not just about not being a liar. It's about speaking the truth. Sometimes speaking the truth involves stopping gossip when a gossiper comes a-gossiping. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do is when someone's about to share something that they're not supposed to share, encourage them to stop. Sometimes that involves defending someone's reputation, whose reputation's being run through the mud unjustly. Sometimes that means confronting someone in love and calling them to repentance when they're a professing believer and they're choosing their sin over Jesus. Sometimes speaking the truth in love means encouraging someone who is living their life with a load of false guilt, and they need someone to come alongside them and remind them of the promises of the Gospel and the freedom that they have in Christ. Sometimes speaking the truth means saying unpopular things to people who are blinded by their sin. We all agree that telling lies about others is wrong. But to speak the truth in love oftentimes requires a risk that many of us are unwilling and uncomfortable to take. The world that we live in tells us to define love as being only positive and encouraging and affirming towards whatever someone is doing or feeling. And when that is how you define love, it seems to be diametrically opposed to confrontation. But friends, love without truth is not biblical love. Love without truth is sappy, sentimental, cowardly, and it is not truly love. In fact, the Bible says that our world has fallen for the lies of the enemy, the devil, and wants to follow their own rules and call their own shots and build their own kingdom. And when we, as those made in God's image, are unwilling to speak truth to a lost world in need of a Savior, when we're unwilling to speak truth to the straying believer who is choosing sin over Jesus, when we're unwilling to speak truth to our neighbor who is ruining their lives or our child who is foolishly running after the world, we are not imaging the God of all truth. But when we choose to stay silent, we are instead imaging His enemy, the Father of all lies who loves when we use an unbiblical definition of truth to justify our telling lies or our staying silent when truth needs to be spoken. As witnesses of Jesus, we must speak the truth in love. In love. We must not use the truth as a club to harm others. We must not use speaking the truth to feed our egos and our pride or to merely win arguments regardless of the carnage and destruction that it brings. Our truth is speaking must be tethered to our love for God and our love of others. Our truth speaking must flow from a desire for God to be glorified and others to be built up and edified and live in the way that God has called them to live. To obey our commission from King Jesus to make disciples of all nations, to save souls and mature saints, to obey that commission from Jesus, to live lives of evangelism and discipleship. We must speak the truth in love. Paul actually says in Ephesians 4 that the mature Christian life involves speaking the truth in love. That's where that phrase comes from. And then he defines what that means in Ephesians 4.29 by saying this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Our words, our truth-telling should build up others. It should be appropriate. And it should provide grace. Grace. Friends, the truth of the Gospel, the truth of God's Word will often hurt us momentarily with conviction, but that same truth will bind up those wounds with the hope of Jesus Christ. Truth and love are not enemies, but they are friends and they must flow from our tongues together if we will live lives that are pleasing to God. We're called to speak the truth in love to fellow image bearers, to those whom God has called us to love and minister to. But I would be remiss as a pastor if I didn't also add that we must speak the truth and not tell lies about God as well. This ties back to the second and third commandments. Don't make graven images. Don't take God's name in vain. Why? Because God cares that He not be misrepresented. God cares that His character and His attributes not be maligned. The primary reason that God created the world was so that His perfect and glorious character could be put on display and celebrated by His creation. If that is God's ultimate aim in creating us, if that is God's ultimate aim in our existence, then believing and speaking lies about God is a massively big deal to God. Our conception of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, must come from God's revelation of Himself in His inspired Word. It must not come from our background and traditions, our experiences and feelings. God has spoken about Himself. He has described Himself so that we can know Him and aren't left feeling in the dark to know who this God is. That's why reading our Bibles matters. That's why studying theology matters. Because when we don't, we're prone to believe lies about the God for whom we exist, that discredits God, that angers God. Those called to teach the Bible and the New Testament are actually told that they need to approach that calling with fear and trembling and reverence. Why? Because they have the potential to misrepresent God, which is a grievous sin, and they will be held accountable for what they teach and what they preach. Friends, what we listen to about God, what we sing about God, what we say about God, what we believe about God matters significantly to God. And Satan loves nothing more than packaging half-truths about God into digestible nuggets to be consumed by the masses who lack the discernment, to spot a counterfeit because they're not familiar with the original. Satan still is asking the question, Did God really say this? Is God really who the Bible says He is? Speaking the truth, And staying away from being and bearing a false witness are required by God. But I think we all know the old mantra is true, that actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. We all have heard people say things and make promises, and we know whether they mean it or not by what they do not by what they say. And that leads us to our third truth within this topic of bearing false witness. A truth that I don't believe we often think about. And that's this. Bearing false witness with our lives is forbidden. Not just with our words, but with our lives. It's possible to say the right things and believe the right things and still have lives that are telling a lie about God and the power of the gospel. The obvious, obvious example of this is hypocrisy. Pretending to be about God at church while living the opposite everywhere else. Saying you love God more than anything, but not taking any steps to know Him anymore. Saying you feel bad about your sin, but not being willing to actually repent or do something about it. It does not matter what you say, it matters what you do. It's possible and prevalent for professing believers to lie about God and to lie about the gospel with their actions. We all know that. But take that idea about lying about God and the gospel with our lives a step further and consider this question. When someone looks at your life, when someone looks at how you live, what you value, how you carry yourself, what you spend your time and your treasure on, what your goals and ambition and purpose is, what you find joy in, what would they say matters most to you? Would they say that it is abundantly clear that God is your treasure and Jesus is your King? Beyond living a life that does not involve wilding out on the weekends, breaking laws and saying cuss words in the workplace, What would the world say you're living for? And would they notice that there's anything different about your mission and your purpose from those in your life who do not know the Lord? Friends, our lives speak much louder than our words. And what God's Word claims is that the gospel of Jesus Christ so fundamentally changes a person that when they are born again, they are given a new heart, and new desires, and new affections, and a new hunger for the Lord. The Bible actually says in 2 Corinthians 5, they become a new creation they're forgiven their sins before God, amen, but they're also changed and transformed from the inside out. And that transformation takes time. We're forgiven in an instant, that's justification, but sanctification happens progressively over time. You're not just going to get saved and all of a sudden you're just like Jesus. It ebbs and flows, and yet, even though that growing in Christ-likeness is not instantaneous... There is a new hunger, a new affection, a new desire for God that changes how the true believer lives and changes how the true believer values things. In Paul's words from Philippians 3, all I once counted as gain, I now count as loss, as rubbish, as waste, In comparison to knowing Christ. All I once counted gain. All I once was living for. It's nothing to me. Because Jesus is the treasure that I'm seeking after now. Is that you? Is that your experience? Do you consider having a nice family and good health and well-adjusted children and a good home and a stable income, and nice vacations, and an early retirement plan, as you pursue fulfilling the American dream? Do you count all of those good things as rubbish and loss when compared to the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior more and more? I'm not saying all that stuff I just listed is bad. What I'm asking is... Do you love and trust and treasure those things more than God? Because the Bible claims, when we read it, that the gospel of Jesus so fundamentally changes a person that they will now hunger after God, they will love God with all their heart, they will treasure something far greater than anything this world has to offer. They love and hunger after and are satisfied in God. That's why believers throughout history have been willing to die for the gospel. That sounds radical to us. That's just normal Christianity in Sudan this morning. That's just normal Christianity in Iraq. That's why persecuted Christians today are meeting in secrecy and risking their lives to gather with God's people to sit under the Word. That's why men and women throughout history have been willing to be separated from their family and imprisoned for not staying quiet about the Gospel because the Gospel has transformed their hearts and their desires and their purpose and their ambition and their mission in such a fundamental way that they can let go of the things of this life because Jesus is better. To them, there's a difference between the type of Christianity that risk its life and is mistreated and taken advantage of and joyfully accepts persecution for the gospel to be spread. There's a difference between that kind of Christianity and the type of Christianity where you're constantly having to be begged to read your Bible in the comfort of your own home, where you're constantly being asked to value the local church over your more important weekend plans, and you're constantly having to be begged to talk to your friend about Jesus with no actual risk involved. There is a great chasm of difference between those verses of Christianity. And the reason that when we read our Bibles it doesn't make sense to us, the reason that we read in the Psalms and we hear David say in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul pants for you, O God. We read David saying in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth I desire none besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. He's the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. He's what I'm living for. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. John 6, I am the bread of life. Come to me and you Never hunger and thirst again. Paul in Philippians 3, everything is lost because Jesus is better. Paul from a jail cell in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. When we read those things, they sound crazy to us. But every one of those passages and a million others, imply to us that the gospel of Jesus transforms our hearts so we desire God supremely and we are satisfied in and find our ultimate joy in Him, not His stuff. That over-the-top language about hungering for God, desiring God, counting everything as lost, being willing to die for the gospel too often sounds like a foreign language to us today. Why? Why? Because all too often, we don't really love God. We just want Him to help us have a nice life, a good marriage, good health, well-adjusted kids, and comfort and security all our days with a little cherry on top of heaven in eternity. Because all too often, we don't treasure God. We treasure what God can give us. And then we get mad at God when He doesn't give us the things that He never promised to give us. I fear that many professing believers today are using God, not treasuring God. And their lives show it. It shows not always through their words, but through their actions and their lives that tell a lie about God and about the truth and the power of the gospel. Last point. Desiring God proves Our profession. Desiring God proves that our profession of faith is real. When I was 19, God opened up a door for me to go to Philadelphia for a summer to work at a Christian-based drug recovery program. I was living in a mission with uh, drug addicts that were there and being able to teach them the Bible uh, the best a 19-year-old could. Um, It was an eye-opening experience. It was great for me. Um, but of all the things that I benefited from that experience, all the people that I met, all the things that I learned, the experience I had, the thing that has left the most lasting impact on me was nothing that I did there, but it was a book that I read during my free time. <clears> There's <throat> a book called uh, Desiring God by a former pastor uh, whose name is John Piper. And within the first few pages of that book, I was struck Because what he argued in this book is that God, His ultimate aim is for Him to be glorified. And that the greatest good is for Him to be glorified. The purpose of our life is for Him to be glorified. But then he made this argument and it stopped me in my tracks and made me rethink and reevaluate my entire life. He said, God is most... Glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God will be the most glorified in our lives when we are the most satisfied in Him. I grew up in church. I knew answers to the Bible. I could tell you, you know, a lot of stuff. I was a good church kid. I knew the traditions, I knew the songs, I knew when to stand and sit. Um, I I did all that. But even when I came to true faith in Jesus as a 17-year-old, Christianity was always about do this, don't do this. Avoid these things, do these things. It was always about limiting your freedom. It was always about moralism. And as a 19-year-old, as I was reading that book and reflecting on those things, God caused me to see that God doesn't just want us to love and follow Him out of duty. He wants us to love and follow Him because we delight in Him and desire Him and hunger for more of Him. There's a radical difference between obeying and following God because you have to and because you want to. And God will be glorified more or less by where we land on that. How does that fit in to all of this? Many of you might come to church week in and week out and think, I kind of wish Nick would just be a little bit more encouraging and uplifting. Just give us, you know, something... Been coming for three years, and every sermon just kind of angsty. Why? Because in the Bible Belt of America, there are masses of people who have had a religious experience with God in the past but have never experienced being born again. That's why. You might ask, why on a Sunday when... You know, that's not this Sunday, but on a Sunday when everybody that's here is our people, why you keep calling people to faith in Jesus? That's why. Because the gospel doesn't just say, admit, believe in Jesus... And what he's done, confess him as Lord. It doesn't just say that. It always implies that when you believe the Gospel in the right way, that your heart changes. So it's not just the ABCs of the Gospel. It's the ABCD. Admit you're a sinner. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Confess Him as Lord. Delight in the Lord. Desire the Lord. Because the the biblical Christianity that's actually found here is one where God gets inside of you and changes you from the inside out and He creates a new home hunger and a new desire that wasn't there before. So if that's our experience, if that's the normal Christian life, then why is it so easy for our Christianity to just be this kind of duty-bound thing that keeps us from cussing at work and going out on the weekends? It's not just about what we avoid, it's about what we love, it's about what we treasure, it's about what we desire. Delight in the Lord, hungering for more of Him. That's going to ebb and flow for the Christian. But it's going to be a fruit of the Spirit that will be present in and will provide proof that something real and transforming has happened in your life. But if there is a consistent lack of that kind of delight and that kind of hunger for God, it should cause us concern not because the Christian life is always happy and clappy and lived on the mountaintop, but because when we're truly saved, the Bible says God gives us a new heart, new desires, new affections, a new hunger. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And if that happens, then we're going to be different. We're going to love God, not the world. We're going to hunger for God, not the things the world offers. We're going to feel conviction over our sin instead of comfortably living in it. We're fundamentally going to be changed and have a different purpose and ambition and mission for our life. Friends, do you delight in and desire God? Have you ever? What is your life that others can see? And what does your desires that only you know reveal about God and the power of the gospel? How you answer those questions has eternal implications. You know what happens when you go to a pastor conference? A handful of things happen. One is, is you get to answer questions like, so how big's your church? How long you been there? Which is just jockeying for pastors to feed their pride. But what also happens is you have speakers who get up and they say, you need to reach the lost community around you, but you also need to reach the lost community among you. Beware of false professions. I can't go to a pastor conference without hearing that. Why? Because there's a category in the Bible for people who say, I did this for you, I did this for you, I did this for you, and then are told, I never knew you. Friends, Do you desire and delight in God? Is that your story? Unlike us, who are fallen sinners and are prone to speak lies and not speak the truth with our words or our lives, Jesus did what? He perfectly used His tongue. He perfectly lived His life for God's glory and others' good. Unlike us who apart from grace and love and desire this world more than God, our Savior Jesus famously said during His ministry in John 4, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. My food, my purpose, my will is to do His work. Jesus' purpose was God's will. His joy Joy and desire was being in God's presence. He never had a sinful desire. He was never satisfied with and never treasured this world more than God. Jesus never lied about God or the gospel with His words or with His life. In short, Jesus did what? He did what we cannot do. And then He died in our place and He bore God's holy judgment for us. And accepting Jesus' sacrifice, God the Father raised Him from the dead on Easter Sunday because the grave could no longer hold Him. And Jesus ascended to heaven. And then he sent the Spirit at Pentecost upon his new covenant people. And the power of Jesus to live, love and to live for and to desire and to obey and to delight in God dwells in those who come to an end of themselves, repent and believe in Jesus' finished work for their salvation and commit their lives to Jesus being Lord. Jesus died for our lives. He died for our cowardice and not speaking the truth when we should. He died for our bad theology and beliefs about God. He died for our evil, sinful desires. He died even for our sinful apathy for the things that we should desire. His blood was shed. His blood was enough to atone for and forgive all of those sins through our words, actions, thoughts and desires. But His blood doesn't just forgive us. It's not just powerful enough to atone for our sin. It is also powerful enough to transform us into a holy, distinct people who are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy people in a fallen world who say yes to Jesus and no to the world, not because we're self-righteously judging them, not in order to merit ourselves before God, but because God's changed us and He made us want Him. His finished work empowers a new covenant people to have new affections for God. We will still fall short regularly. We will still daily need to repent and remind ourselves of the hope of the gospel. But that new desire and that new hunger for God will be there. That's the normal Christian life. That's not the radical, crazy Christian life. That's the normal Christian life. And in the Bible Belt, Pastors and churches are competing to see who can get the most butts in pews so they can feel good and feel validated about their life when in reality, the pastors and the leaders of churches, no matter what denomination, no matter where they're located, cannot do anything to change a hardened heart and to give sight to blind eyes. Friends, our goal is not to be viewed as successful and to compare In numbers with other churches up the road. Our goal is to pray that God will move and work in our presence so that the lost come home, so that the blind can see, so that the dead are raised. And that is a work of God. That is the normal Christian life. Christianity is not just a means to fix your marriage. It's not just a means to make you be happy. It's not just a means to put your kids with some religious education so they don't turn out like other kids. It is fundamentally about God changing you from the inside out. Is that your story? Do you love, in, love and delight in and treasure God? If that Sounds totally foreign to you. Then it's possible that you've been sold a bill of goods, that you've went through religious rituals, but have never been born again because you've never experienced the power of the gospel to create a new hunger and desire within your heart. But if that's you, the God who we sang about just a little while ago, the God who saves, calls you to come. He beckons you to come and believe in the finished work of Christ. If you're here that this morning, and you've experienced that desire for God, but that love for Him, that passion, is waning and distant. And an apathy has crept in your heart, and you find yourself in a valley. I urge you to cry out to God this morning to renew and restore and revive your love and desire for Him. And if this morning you're here and you're living in the delight of God, then praise Him for His marvelous grace that is empowering you to do so. Friends, wherever you are, whatever your story, whatever you're facing, whatever your doubts, I plead with you to do business with God today. To respond to Him as the Spirit leads. Ensure this morning that your words and your lives are telling the truth about Him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. Father God, I thank You that as a 17-year-old young man who had made a profession of faith a decade before, that You opened my eyes to see Jesus Christ and the hope of the Gospel I thank You, God, that You have given us Your Word so we can know who You are and know what You call us to and know what the normal Christian life will look like. God, my prayer this morning for myself and everyone here is, Lord, that You will help us to respond to You as Your Spirit leads. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know You, I pray, Lord, that they will come to You this morning. That they'll respond, not caring what their neighbor thinks, not, not caring about the fear of man, but only thinking about You. God, if there's someone here who is apathetic and has grown cold in their love for You, I pray that where they are, they'll do business for You and that You'll revive them and renew them and remind them of the hope of the Gospel. Transform them by Your Spirit. God, we pray that You will change us, make us more like Christ. Help us not to trust in our power. Help us not to try to pick ourselves up from our bootstraps. Help us not to try to clean ourselves up before we come. God, help us to look to Jesus, the founder, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Remember what He's done and remember the power of the Gospel to transform us. God, we pray this morning that You will change us, make us holy, give us a vision of You, We pray that you will be glorified as we respond at this time. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Feel free to stand with us this morning and sing.